All right. This poem is dedicated to this month, which is African-American Music Appreciation Month. And this poem is dedicated to Brother Gil Scott Heron. It's a sequel to a poem that he wrote called It Still Ain't No New Thing. Or It Ain't No New Thing. I sequeled line, and it's called It Still Ain't No New Thing. The sequel. Thank you, Brother Gil Scott Heron, for pointing out that it ain't no new thing. White people have always ripped us off culturally, from the beginning of time to now. I mean, we know that we are the innovators of all forms of music, though we don't get credit for it. But why? Because of our oppressor's thievery. From gospel to rock and roll to jazz, from bebop to hip-hop, we create, they take. Chuck Berry's hip swing made white women wet in all the wrong places, so Elvis was created to make their parents more comfortable. And it still ain't a new thing, because New Edition did the same thing. And it wasn't a new thing to see the new kids on the block get on top. Maybe that's when the no new thing became new, because it left those white kids on the block hanging tough, while we continue to hang, while hung. So what's new? Well, it still ain't a new thing, except the thing. Now the rhythm makers have allowed old pale face into the sound booth. No blues to sing, except for that one good tooth, that piece that hangs from his ear, which helps validate his soulless status. It still ain't a new thing. Innovation is as common for us as emulation is for them. But what's new is the question. Are we being ripped off or are we giving it away? Because now we seem to be inviting the enemy into our homes and doing inventory when he leaves. But the thing that they knew is that they want what we create, whether they steal it or you gave it to them. It belongs to us. It's not yours to give away, but you do. You are the ones who gave John B. his platinum plaques while he crooned. They don't know. And maybe they didn't. But I'm sure that by the time Justin came around exposing the nipples of Janet, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. He was hinting to the world that he was bringing sexy back. And you bought it. And it still ain't a new thing. That old pale face thinks that he can bring back something that he was never a part of. Or something that has never left. We have always been crazy, sexy, and cool. Rest in peace of TLC. Meanwhile, the descendants of Tarzan swing through the jungle, shirtless, saving damsels in distress with the fever for the flavor of a cracker. Mr. Lost Without You, trapped in deja vu, the boy wonder Robin needs to know that blood is thicker than water, and all dogs find their way home eventually. It still ain't no new thing, and no new names, cotton pickers. It still ain't no new thing, that we fertilize and till the cotton field. The cotton rises to the top of the charts, gets picked for the prize, the Grammy, while the pickers keep picking. But pay attention to the lyrics that Boy Wonder is singing to you. I'm lost without you. He is only admitting to you through song that he and his people wouldn't be here without your support. But have you ever wondered how many brothers or sisters are missing out on their glory because of the over-glorifying of the old face? And it still ain't a new thing. But it needs to be pointed out that if you allow the same rapist, murderous thief into your home, He's going to screw, kill, and rob you. But this time, there will be no investigation because there was no forced entry. 
It's an open and shut case. And it still ain't a new thing. Now, I'm not telling you who to like, but I'm telling you that you owe the innovators, you owe the ancestors, you owe the children to keep black music where it belongs, with black people. And quit expecting the same white thief that stole you to save you. Long live black music, or should I say, what's left of it. And it still ain't a new thing, because as Brother Gil Scott Heron says, America is always the same old shit. This poem is titled, Nobody Asked Me. I love the idea of her having my seed. She said we can't afford it, but love is all this new life we need. That and the chance. A chance to show us that we're not just victims of circumstance. We're following the ways of the Most High, which says to be fruitful and multiply. But as I look into her eyes, I can't help but wonder, does she want our seed to die? That's a thought that I can't see. She knows that she didn't create the seed without me. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to pull a rank, but how can I not feel blank in a society that says if a woman wants a child, she could visit a sperm bank? This mentality has now become so ill that now she doesn't want me to know that she doesn't want my seed. She can quietly and secretly pop an abortion pill. This also makes the man feel less, because it overshadows the fact that we both have been blessed. And yes, at a certain time in our relationship, I told her if she got pregnant, I would need to take a paternity test. But that was then, and this is now. And now she wants to use abortion as a form of payback on me which to me is a fucking disgrace. So now she won't have to look at our child's innocent little face to remind her the mistakes that she also made. And she thinks that by aborting my seed, feelings for me would just fade. But me being a man, all I could do is pray that she makes the right decision and not waste that decision on the future whereabouts of me, simply a man. Because regardless of what I'm going to do, if she chooses to abort, or should I say murder the seed, the blood will remain on her hands. The name of this poem is titled, Who Will Listen? If I shout out from the pulpit regurgitating bullshit, would you listen? If I told you time and time again that my life was hard and that's why I sell dope and kill people that look like me on CDs, would you listen? Well, you are listening, which is why on any corner you could find a multi-million dollar church and a millionaire minister and CDs being sold by the millions by menstrual masters because we're listening to lies. But who will listen to the truth? See, hearing is mainstream, but listening is underground. Hearing is picking up sounds, but listening is taking that sound and transforming it into thought, which means listening requires work. So asking the question, who will listen, is like asking, who is willing to work? Who is willing to work to reverse the number of black men being incarcerated? Who is willing to work to reverse the number of black women screwing black women? Who is willing to work to reverse the number of black babies being raised without fathers? Who is willing to work to reverse the number of black babies being aborted? Who will listen to the call? It's a final call. And we poets are ordained as messengers of truth, which is the only thing worth listening to. Are you listening? If so, what are you listening to? Are you listening to the sound of the officer's warning shot ring through the back of the head of a young brother? Were you listening on 9-11 as the president was telling you that your terrorist enemy was Bin Laden? But who would listen to the facts that the president has a history of legalized murder during his term as a governor? You listen to the devil tell you who the devil is. Or you listen to the God inside of you? See, God is talking, but who will listen? The God should be talking and the earth should be listening. Who will listen to the doers of the deeds? Who will listen to the protectors of the people? Who will listen to the ones who are willing to lay down their lives so the babies can live?
Poets should be listening to themselves and what they're saying. Start living the words you preach. This action alone will make the people easier to reach. But who's even listening to the words in this piece? The people are crying out for help. Can you hear them? Turn off your television set so you can hear them. Turn off your radio so you can hear them. If you're talking loud and saying nothing, shut the hell up so you can hear them. Who will listen? Hearing is easy to do, but thinking is required in determining what you should and shouldn't be listening to. Who will listen? Will it be you? This poem is titled Eclipse Mentality. On Sunday, the one day, you try your best to live right, but after service, you sit at the table taking bites out of swine and puffs on the cancel vine, decreasing your time on this earth on Sunday. How much is your temple worth? You know, the one that God built? Obviously not as much as that church. I can see that by the way that you destroy it with the filth that you eat on Sunday. It's the blind leading the blind. These preachers have become so big that now they have concubines because of all the consigned swine that they have eaten. They need help tying their shoes. Stomach's too big to see their own feet. On Sunday, it's when the so-called Christians take out their trash and deliver it to the preacher's sorry ass, using the church as a dump site. He takes it all in and gives you a price, and he cleans it all up, and you start it all over again next Sunday. When will this vicious cycle end? When will the blind, deaf, and dumb return what the white man gave to keep you dumb, docile slaves and makes you behave like idiots? When will my people wake up and stop listening to these liars behind pulpits feeding us bullshit? When, when, when? Well, it damn sure won't be on Sunday. Erase Sunday and make way. Prepare for a better day. Any day can be a holy day. Stop surrendering to sadistic, sodomizing, superficial superstitions. Search your own spirits. Separate truth from falsehood when you hear it. Sunday comes and Sunday goes. Spirituality strikes the soul and it grows stronger daily, not just on Sunday. Wake up. It's Monday, a new day, a new beginning. Stop sinning. Start your week off right. And maybe, just maybe, next Sunday, it'll be all right. This piece is titled Too Young to Be So Old came from a newspaper article that I read. She's a baby with a baby. She's fully developed physically, but underdeveloped mentally. But now she's a new mommy. But how can she be? She's just a baby who was knocked up due to low self-esteem or maybe a lack of self-worth. She uses her body as a shield to hide her true self, someone she has never met. So she has unprotected sex is pregnant, gives birth. Now her whole life has changed, not for the better. To her, it's worse. She uses her body to feel wanted, like her mom did when she had her. No opening of her cold heart, but provides the warmth of widespread legs and mouth when given head. She likes it better this way, because her name gets called out in the same breath as God's, repeatedly. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. She sees the fruits of her labor as she wipes the calm from her eyes. Job well done. Afterwards, she stares at her own eight and a half hours of labor, takes a glimpse of herself in the mirror, and sees the mistakes that her mom made. Who has sex to get paid? But baby girl just wants to get laid and wonders she has done the same thing to her own little girl, who only wants to be loved. But mommy doesn't know how to give something that she didn't receive herself. 
She doesn't want to hurt her baby and also doesn't want to hurt anymore. So she takes one look back at her baby, smiles, and jumps from her bedroom window, which was on the fifth floor. She decided she was too young to be a mother and not yet old enough to be a whore, like her mom. She was a baby, with a baby, fully developed physically, but yet undeveloped mentally. As victims of foreclosures or auto repossessions, or should I say land grabbing auto theft, I still feel like victory is mine, because I've gained the lessons, and I'm taking a good credit score for resurrecting my life. And I became a carpenter like Christ, and I'm building the minds of the children. But I'm seeking 12 disciples, armed with hammers, not hummers, but hammers, to drive truth into the foundation of this black nation. And when we finish building, we need to lock it down like a vice. Because the Lord, the Lord is waiting on us. The miscalculated niggas who still pay four-fourths of the price for freedom expecting the quarterback to throw you a TD pass. But you better fake Jake if you're expecting to reach the promised land. Because Jake is as much as a snake as a serpent that promised us 40 acres and a mule. But we settled like jackasses, and we ended up 41 acres short selling for horses under the hood, sold to us by the descendants of hooded horsemen, instead of that one good mule, which is all it took to transport Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to their destination. No navigational system like OwnStar was needed. They followed the North Star. But now niggas say it's too cold up north, but they can take the heat down south, because they've got olive branches on their shade trees, and they're surrounded by cool stone mountains, so they sit in the heat of the night under that tree, wondering, have y'all ever wondered why the dirt down south is so goddamn red? Because when it rains, truth pours, and the water hits those blood-stained olive branches, and it drips, and it hits those blood-soaked stone mountains, and it flows downstream and remains on the ground. So now when you walk, you remind your people's pain and suffering. So the road is red to remind you the link or gap that's formed between you and your forefathers and mothers, and the ones you yourselves have formed between you and your children, all because you're chasing Creflo's dollars, negating God's good law. But don't worry, you'll also learn. And if this truth hurts, remember, it's always to hit bitch or dog who hollers. BP stands for black people's name in this poem. Blood is thickening water, or maybe unless there's oil in it. Then this gooey mixture becomes like glue for the way it has banded this band of bandits looking for band-aids to cover the hurt. But the hurt is so severe that they say that they should get on their sailboats and sail away until they have sold out. Too late, you've already sold out. You've already screamed, yelled, and cried louder for dirty water, whether fluoride in the tap or oil in the ocean. Then you have all the injustices caused by this blood-dirty southern city of old. Sacred southern values devaluing blacks. Malcolm said it best, the chickens have come home to roost. You need not be sad, because I'm not. But beware, and remember, hurricanes always travel in the paths of the slave ships. Trust me, there's much more to come. The universe is unsettled and has to settle the score using universal law. Some call it karma. What you give is what you get. But why beautiful blue water, you say? Because your beautiful blue water has drowned the souls of black slaves soaked on the ocean's floor. And you're doing the same to their descendants, drowning their rich, beautiful black history. Black like oil. Rich like oil. Soaked on the ocean's floor. To me, BP stands for black people, remind you that we are still here and showing you what we are. So don't run. Repent, reconcile, repair. You can't run from universal law. It doesn't come when you expect it, but the opposite. So save your tears, because there's nothing wrong with the oil and water mixture. 
because the water was already a beautiful shade of blue, it can only improve with black in it, because black is always beautiful. So be thankful for BP, and be thankful for black people, because without us, you have nothing to be thankful for. This piece is titled, This Means War. Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, 99 bullets. Sean Bell and friends, 50 bullets. Amadou Diallo, 41 bullets. Being a black man in America is worthless. Being a pig in America who kills innocent black men is priceless. For every other nigger, there's incarceration. We should put a bounty on this hunter and let bounty be the quicker picker-upper and see how well it soaks up swine blood and send it to the lab for testing to see if the DNA is a match, a match with the blood of other animals that scavenge and eat their own young, like America, the real animal farm, overseen by old McDonald, who still has his farm. And on his farm, he has some blacks, E-I-E-I-O, with a back shot here and a back shot there, hair shot, there shot, everywhere black shot by crooked-ass cops. And they congratulated for the ethnic cleansing of American city blocks. They had the audacity to call us American gangsters, which is criminal. Because these Crips in blue have caused the flood of blood to flood from blacks, keeping the streets of America intact, attacking with the same tactics to keep us statistics and giving off more static than a dryer full of colored clothes. No fabric softener, leaving the lives of black folk hard as penitentiary steel, all because of the actions of the wearers of the blue shield. And it's always safe for them to hide behind and call it justifiable homicide, while black lives are lost with no justifications. And these pigs get paid vacations. So don't get caught up thinking that this is just a poem, because I consider it the calm before the storm. As long as you can see me and hear me, it's calm and it's warm. But if you don't, that means the storm has begun. So dress warm, pigs, because I'm predicting a long, cold summer, as cold as corpses of dead black bodies and mortuaries. But this time, I'm suggesting that we bring death to the precinct. But these pigs, they stink, which means that they're rotten, and it's time to get rid of them. I mean, haven't we tried everything else? How many more family members and loved ones should share tears for innocent victims assassinated by paid terrorists? I say no more. I say no more. God damn it, I say no more. Remember, when I cease to be heard or seen, you'll know what it means. I just declared war. Fuck the police. you welcome to the poets thank you so much for featuring on here thank you for having me sir i appreciate it i pleasure i remember the first time i saw you at the merc i believe you read one of the poems that you did tonight um i'm sorry i forget the title the one about blood in the soil down south that poem is the blood dirty south yes the blood dirty south that it's a gut punch every time you hear it and I, i i you can hear the experience you have reading that poem. Can you tell us a little bit about writing it? Um, so I was born, and I'm going to try to make it as short as possible. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, but I was raised in Gary, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically I was in Gary for about 22 years of my life, and I moved to Memphis shortly after my brother was murdered. I had a brother that was murdered in 1992, and my mom retired from a job and moved back to her roots, which is Memphis, Tennessee. And I moved there January, either December of 92 or January of 93. And culture shock. Yeah. It was an extreme culture shock for me going up because Gary was uh, majority black. Um, We had a black mayor the whole time I was there. So moving to Memphis, they hadn't quite had a black mayor yet. Wow. 
and I still felt like the stories that my mother and father told me when they were kids, it still felt like that when I got there as an adult. It felt, it felt like the same energy was still there. Mm. And it just really threw me off, and I just I wasn't quite prepared for that. So, uh, But what I did was connected with my parents and my grandparents' roots. Mm. And I thought about those stories that they was telling. And I remember the story about my great-grandmother uh, telling me about uh, seeing a man hanging from a tree for the first time. And that's what inspired that poem. So um, hearing her tell me that story when I was about 12 or 13 years old, because she was born in 1880 and died in 1984. And I remember that story, but when I got to Memphis, seeing some of those same things that they talked about, it's like they were still present. In You mean like in the attitude of the people around you? Yes. yeah, um, The attitude of the people who looked like me, but more so from the attitude of people who didn't look like yeah. us, they were still very oppressive. Yeah, They still had that oppressive mentality, still talked to people like it was still those times back yeah. that my mother and father and my grandparents grew up in. So for me, that was my way of letting that out and getting that out of my system. That was in the 90s? Yes. Fucking hell. Early 90s, yes. It's so, probably not that much better today then. Not really. The mentality probably still the same. I yeah. think that uh, with the... Uh, influx of like sports like you know memphis has a uh, a very thriving sports team now i think blacks have taken a little bit more power mm-hmm. now as economically i think they've taken a little bit more power now so things are a little bit better but i think that that energy is still there i think that energy yeah. still exists it's hard to, i mean it's in the soil at that point you know it's, yes. it's hard to get it out um so you mentioned earlier uh, i think off mic that you write poems about things that bother you how, how long yes. have you been doing that uh, that's where I started. Yeah. Um, so it started for me growing up in Gary. I lost a lot of friends to like uh, murder and stuff. So I, I would write poems to their moms mm. to kind of make them feel better about losing their children. And I didn't know that one day I would be, I would be, you know, not really writing one to my mom about her losing one of her children, but still writing something to try to make us both feel better. I guess in that loss because uh, it's one thing to try to write a poem to help somebody's mother feel better about a friend that you lost but not really knowing that true pain or what that feels like yeah but then when your mother loses one herself it becomes a totally different dynamic for me and so then the poems shifted and and got a little bit more serious after that so. yeah so before you were you've always been writing i would imagine right uh from my mom said in one of my interviews when my first book came out the interview asked her how long did she recognize i've been writing and her answer was he used my umbilical cord as a, as a, as a crayon. I, mean, I don't think he ever not wrote. Uh, so then, so the subject matter, you became more, it became more serious after that experience. Well, it, it was a little bit serious before then, but definitely got, uh, because um, I believe in, um, I guess the word uh, back then, one of my mentors gave me a book, and the book was called Metaphysics, the Science of Life. Mm. So what I learned, what he taught me was that uh, my brother's breath was one with my breath. So mm-hmm. I had to write for both of us. So I feel like I, I know at that time I got more serious because he was a writer as well. And I think that I had to continue his journey and my journey at the same time. Wow. So I think we both became one at that moment. Those poems that you write for the mothers mm-hmm. who've lost their children, are those ones that you share or are those too personal? They, well, I share uh, a poem that I have on my second city it's called uh ease the pain mm. and it was about losing the first time i lost one of my best friends mm. and i talk about that and also talk about losing my brother in that same poem okay and it's called ease the pain and i talk about both of those incidents but 
the ones that I wrote for those mothers at that time. Now I just gave, I just wrote those one, one and done, and I just gave them to them. I never got copies of. Them. Oh wow! Yeah, they were just one and done. I was just really doing that as my gift to show them that I understood what they were trying my best to empathize what they was going right. through, and I was just doing that as some form of help to let them know what their children meant to me, basically. That's. I mean, it's obviously horrible, but it's beautiful too. It's beautiful that you were able to do what you can because what can you do? That's right. always the question. How can you make it better? You can't bring you them can. back. Right, right. right. So um, if I can expound on that thing. Yeah, uh, please. I, and at that time, that's all I was doing. I was really just writing poems for that purpose. Not mm. like I didn't write unless somebody died. That's not what I'm saying. But. Yeah. That's what gave me a purpose. Like I would write poems to like you know girlfriends and you know uh-huh. stuff like that. But um, I was just gifted at being able to speak a certain kind of way because I I grew up listening to poets. Mm-hmm. You know the last poets, Gil Scott Heron. You know things, the Watts Prophets, and so I grew up listening to poets. So I was always fascinated. But I always wrote poems to music. So because music was a big thing in my house. You know we oh, always yeah. it was a lot of Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. You know. Um, Gladys Knight. That's, so writing was always in the house, and all my brothers to me. Let you know. Let me tell you, they all writers as well. But um, so it never. I never knew that I would turn it into a career. In other words, mm. I had no idea at that time that this is what I was going to do mm. um, until not around 1986. Because um, I'm a big. I started big, performing. No, but, but writing more series. Oh, um, okay. I was um, a big hip hop fan. So, mm-hmm. you know, listen, Rakim, Eric Ben Rakim was like my favorite. So when I heard the second album of Rakim, uh, I, I remember going into the room telling my mom, I'm going to be a poet for the rest of my life. What'd she say? Her reply, her reply was, if you're going to be honest, I'll support you. Mm-hmm. But if you're not gonna, if you don't tell the truth, I'm not going to support it. So as long as you're honest, I'll support it. And she supported me until the day she died. Wow. Truly. Wow. Do you remember the first time you got on stage in front of people? It's an interesting question. Yes, yeah. I do. I remember, and I'm pretty sure my memory serves me crazy. It was probably 1987, and it was in Chicago. A friend of hers knew Gwendolyn Brooks. Okay. I'm a big fan of Gwendolyn Brooks. We went to go see Gwendolyn Brooks. It was either at the University of Chicago or at a Chicago library. I don't remember exactly the venue. Mm. And it was open mic before she did her feature. Cool. And I remember, and I tell this story a lot, but at the open mic part, it was like so many people on open mic, and uh, I remember the announcer saying, okay, well, we got one more poet before we bring Gwendolyn Brooks out, and this poet is a little shy, so I need y'all to show them some extra love, and I'm looking around to see who this person is. And they called me. Oh, man. And I looked at my mom, I'm like, no, I'm not going up there. She's like, go, boy, she, just go. So she signed you up? Oh, they had her friend do it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Un- totally unexpectedly. And I didn't even bring my journals. She had Whoa. them with her. Oh. No, she had the journals with her, and it was one of her favorite poems. I did a poem called um, From Pyramids to Projects. Okay. And how we went from being pyramid builders to uh-huh. being project dwellers. Uh-huh. And she loved that poem. So uh, they called me up, and she was like, just look at me. And that's what, because I was always nervous. And, you know, you probably can't tell now, but I was a super bashful, shy kid when okay. I was growing up. All right. She said, just look at me. Ain't nobody else in the room but me. Just look at me. Just read the poem and just look at me. And I read the poem, and uh, it was like a, this thunderous applause. Mm. I've never heard that before in my whole life. I've never heard, like, nothing I did in school that I ever get a response like that mm. in my life. And something hit me. I knew then. I said, wow, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I can do this. And that's what got me on the journey. Now, I still was nervous for the first couple of years sure. afterwards, but, sure. but I knew that this was what I was supposed to be doing at that moment. I knew wow. that. Yeah. That night, I wish I could see that night. I wish it I was there, man. That changed my life. Powerful. Yeah. It changed my life. It really did. It changed my life. Oh. So. 
Well, we're about done here. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate the opportunity, man. I wanted to say to you, Mitch, that uh, this platform that you're uh, providing for us is a beautiful thing. We need it as artists because as artists, we we get a chance to go on stage and say our poems, but we don't get a chance to actually tell the backstories. And Mm. I think the backstories are just as important as the poems. Thank you. Because the poems can't make much sense without the backstories. Absolutely. So so thank you for providing this platform for us. Thank you for being on it. Um, Do you want to tell people where your stuff is, where they can find you? Yes. So um, I... Basically, all I have, I'm eventually going to do another book soon, but uh, my last two CDs are on um, my website is stillblacksea.bandcamp.com. That's S-T-I-L-L-B-L-A-C-K-S-E-E dot bandcamp.com. You can listen to them for free on the CD. If you purchase them, my mom died from breast cancer in 2006. I give half of the proceeds back to an organization that helps women get things that insurance won't pay for. Beautiful. Thank you for being here. And if you are in Denver, come on Friday nights or to the BIPOC night at the Merck and see Q feature or Monday at the Corner Beat or Tuesday at Green Spaces most nights. There's so many open mics. Q's there. He will be there. Thank you, everyone. See ya. Oh.